episode 149 in Milwaukee's Tailgate Brewers podcast, part of the MKE Tailgate Podcast Network. I'm James Langer, joined again today by Brad Ford, Paul Noonan, and Ryan Topp. And guys, I guess it was fun while it lasted. We had baseball for a week, and now who knows? <laughs> uh, hey, Rob Manfred is not a quitter, James. Not like all these players is- considering their health and safety. What a stupid yeah. quote that is. Like, like he has anything to quit from. He's not doing anything. He's like Leonard Nimoy in the Monorail Simpsons episode. <laughs> he, just, he just hangs around and takes credit for things and doesn't do jack. Didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that quote in a second. Plenty to talk about, and we have a lot of questions from everybody as to, like, what's next? So, I mean, we're wondering the same thing, but we'll try to answer your questions, too. <laughs> and also baseball. There's a lot of, like, baseball questions that we could talk about because the Brewers did play three baseball games. And, <laughs> and then like, didn't. <laughs> well, and then didn't, but right. there's also... Well, no, they they actually I'm sorry, they played six baseball games. Six and baseball games. Yep. yeah, it's we only talked about the first two. So we have like four baseball games, though. I don't think we want to talk about that Cubs game on Sunday. That was no, that was we'll bad. just ignore that. Yeah, hey, that turns out Tyler Chatwood can shut down other people, too. Yeah, he true. just had another That's great true. performance. He, he did. He looked outstanding. So maybe it he, took three years. Maybe he he yeah. finally figured it out. Yeah. I mean, I was super excited about that guy, but the control, I just never thought that was going to be a thing he figured out. He has done this, though, in the past, too, where he's shown brief moments of control. But pitchers are weird, man. They figure it out at the weirdest times. And it's it's the one weird trick thing. Like they just figure stuff out and then all of a sudden they're good. And, yep. you know, it was for Jake Arrieta was that way. Or you're you Lee Chassin. You're an ace for a season and then you're never, ever good again. <laughs> exactly. We'll yeah. we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's he is back pitching again. So for somebody. Ulysses? No, he got he got released. Oh, did he, he get released? DFA'd. Oh boy, yeah. he'll be a Marlin in a day. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> probably, Poor. probably. I, I do feel really bad for Mike Morin about that. Like, you know, you know, here's your choice. You've been claimed by the uh, Marlins. Right, exactly. If if your major league career is going to continue, have fun. So we have a lot to get to, but first, a reminder: we are sponsored by Carbon Four Brewing. You know their great beers like Block Party, Flagship Fantasy, Factory IPA, and their Idiot Farm Imperial IPA is back now. The next time you're in Madison, stop by their brewery on Kinsman Boulevard on the east side or look for it at the grocery store. You can also get a 20% discount on some Carbon 4 merch online just by listening to this podcast. Go to Carbon4.com. Use our promo code MKETailgate when you check out. That's Carbon 4 Beer Brilliance. You can also help support our podcast network at patreon.com slash MKE tailgate. Our ball and glove and above patrons get the minor league extra podcast with Ryan and Brad, and they are recording one soon. We promise you'll get that. You also get Paul's reporting as eligible Packers mini pods as well. Luckily mentioned the Brewers got at least six games in before the coronavirus stuff kind of hit the fan <laughs> this past weekend. The entire weekend series, supposed to be the home opener against the Cardinals, got wiped out after several Cardinals player and staff members tested positive. There's a second team with a significant outbreak in the season's first week, so that's kind of a concerning on its own. Uh, right now, the current plan is for the Brewers to resume play against the White Sox Monday night. The Cardinals that are still healthy are apparently going to try to travel to Detroit. They'll play the Tigers starting on Tuesday. All in all, though, it was a day-by-day thing all weekend long as to whether or not they're going to play. You might have seen Brett Anderson's tweets as like saying he's the long, he's like the Lou Gehrig of uh, scheduled starters now because he he was penciled in for like three straight starts. <laughs> Brett Anderson's a great follow. You should do that. 
Uh, but in the meantime, it, it kind of rose up the discussion again on, I guess, MLB's protocols for this, whether it's even a good idea to keep trying to play, uh, whether baseball should keep going or shutting it down. You guys mentioned on that point, uh, Rob Manfred told ESPN, quote, we are playing. The players need to be better. I'm not a quitter in general, and there's no reason to quit now. So basically, the league is pointing the finger at the players. The players are saying uh, travel protocols and such have kind of been a mess from the start. So I guess we'll just start with Patreon question from Jay Google. Basically, whose fault is it? Is the gist of his question. So <laughs> I guess, Paul, what are your feelings on this whole thing? Who's most to blame for this? Is it kind of everybody shares in this, or does one side take it more than the other? All right. So um, in terms of whose fault this is, First is America. Uh, America. <laughs> it's your fault first. Uh, you've all done a piss poor job at managing this outbreak. Every other country's done better. Um, to everybody who claims that America couldn't have anything different, done anything differently, it's obviously not true. It's like the gun thing where, you know, this is the only place where this is happening, the Onion article thing. But I, I mean, the players actually do take a lot of the blame here. So I do think that they should spell out what activities are bad in more detail and have some teeth behind it in the agreement. But like you can't be going out to casinos. This is this is not rocket science. These are a lot of young players. A lot of young people make stupid decisions. But like you gotta you gotta blame the Cardinals and the Marlins for this. They did a bunch of really stupid stuff. Well, and the Cardinals. I just want to get in there just for our protection. It's only reported that There's, they yeah, went to the okay. casino allegedly. So, yes. <laughs> right, and it's not even necessarily like reported. It's rumors. People are it's passing rumored. on it's... rumors. They're very well discussed rumors. They're very public. As far as I know, nobody's written a report no, in like a has. reputable. It is just a rumor. And then put it out there and put their the the weight of their journalistic integrity behind it. So it's it's rumor mongering, and that really bothered me, especially the stuff about the Marlins, the first one when that came out, and uh, you had a, a a reporter, I think it was Bob Nightingale, right? Apparently went on the radio and discussed it, but wouldn't actually put it in writing and put a you know force <laughs> behind it. And so that's, that's just different. He is the yeah, worst. No. Yeah, it's it, that's rumor mongering and wrong. But at the same time, like this is such a well-known thing at this point. It's so openly discussed on any social media. And, you know, who knows where else it's, it's been mentioned, but it's it's out there. We should cut the Marlins no slack. We have record of their text message discussion about deciding to play when they know that they were infected. They're clearly not making good decisions. You know, we, we all had our discussions about should Donnie Mattingly be you know suspended or fired, and that's kind of where I land on that. So I, I'm not into giving them the benefit of the doubt. No, Cardinals, yeah, that is just a rumor, and rumors are not always true. Maybe someone on the Cardinals caught it in a relatively innocent fashion, out grocery shopping or something like that. That's possible. So you give them a lot of blame, but you do give baseball a lot of blame, too, because there were better ways of handling this. The, the protocol is clearly not as well-developed as it should be. Um, the bubbles appear to be working. Um, you know, the NBA and the NHL seem, so far seem to be relatively fine. But there's been a lot of weird holes in baseball's policy here, like tests not getting back quickly enough. Now, that seems to have actually been fixed lately. I've, uh, the reports out of Twins Camp was like it was like a half-hour turnaround now to get tests back. That's good. But things were taking too long before, and leaving a window to infect people, that's where baseball fell down on this originally, where, where they didn't contemplate like the hibernation time of the disease, the time when you are contagious but aren't showing symptoms. If they've taken steps to actually speed up testing for everybody, that's good. But their original policy it did also allow this to happen. I don't know. I'd split it up 
kind of three ways, pretty much even Stevens between all of us and team and ownership. So. Well, and there's a thing with MLB, too, that bothers me. There's lots of little things they could have done. Like we heard the reports on Monday night in Pittsburgh when the Brewers were rain delayed that a bunch of the players on the Brewers went and sat up in the concourse under the overhang. So they were outside. They weren't packed into a clubhouse the way that Anthony Rizzo was talking about how all the Cubs players were packed into a clubhouse together. Yeah. Like you have the run of the entire stadium. And I feel like more should have been done. They did put up tents so that the players could be outside. I feel like more should have been done to keep the players outside where we know that transmission is much, much less likely. And for basically business to be conducted when you're in the stadium, the only reason you should be in the clubhouse is if there is some actual need to get treatment that can't take place outside of the clubhouse. You move operations outside of of enclosed areas and you do things out in in larger spaces and you enforce the mask thing and a lot of this would have been better there's a lot of bad visuals you still see on tv with people being too close in the dugout not wearing masks and you can tell that just clubhouse to clubhouse enforcement varies greatly on on this and you know rizzo especially speaking up about it like he's a cancer survivor he's probably in a very high risk category and the fact that there are some teams that are not actively taking this seriously and the cardinals had some egregious violations in their dugout during their last series too so not surprising but it i don't know it's it's quite bad and baseball should firm that up but the players should be smarter about it too well yeah and the the responsibility ultimately does fall on the players and i was hoping i want to be careful about this it looks like a lot of teams do have good leadership and have kept to protocols and have have minimized problems because we're only seeing big outbreaks on two player groups out of 20 or out of 30 my thing about that though is that's happened what's literally seven days into the season is when we got our second outbreak so that's why i'm hesitant to like be like well so far so good because it should be easy to hold the protocols for a week it's a whole lot different when you're a month in well hold on they have they are a month in like they've been together as teams, not traveling and playing. That does add new things, but they have been together working out as teams since the beginning of July. So they are a month in in that sense. But the being on the road does seem to open up extra. And that's kind of where I'm going with it. It's like we knew like there was a danger when you're own, in your own city, but it's limited because you're only allowed to go so far. But then there's a, and also I feel like it's easier to monitor your own team when you're in a place where you know you're very familiar with and you can kind of keep control of things a little bit better but the second you start traveling is when things become much more difficult because you can lose track of people a little bit more easily well and i think there's a cultural thing in mlb too where road trips are kind of a time for guys to relax a little and let their hair down and a good win a big win on the road is occasion to celebrate and for guys to go and have fun especially if it's like a weekend and so, yeah, there's they're fighting some of that just like inherent baseball thing that we have to say, no, this you, people can't do this for each other. Like you don't want to infect your teammates. And hopefully they're seeing this as an example of what can go wrong. And everybody else is getting a, a nice splash of cold water to the face about how serious this is. They need to start circulating Eduardo Rodriguez's story a little bit more. Ooh. Yes. Who, who was infected with COVID and is now out for the season with heart issues that he developed as a result. I think it's underreported generally that young people don't die from this right away, but 
there seems to be a very high propensity to develop cardiovascular issues long-term as a result. I suspect we'll start seeing that be firmed up more. Like it's bad. And this is exactly the kind of player he's 27 years old who people think of as invincible and now is out for the season and has had his life severely impacted by catching it. So they need to start sending that around to the young kids who think they're invincible and get them, you know, adhering to the rules properly. Yeah, absolutely. When I look back to it, the, the debate, it's something where I, I was always favorable to the player side of things, but I think we could have been more hard on their refusal, absolute refusal to bubble. Yeah. Because I mean, that the first pitches were let's localize communities. Let's, you know, get it down and make sure we're in Arizona, which, you know, I get why Arizona is a tough place to do it, but right. maybe looking back at my comments, I was, wasn't hard enough on the players on that side of the negotiation and their re- absolute refusal to, and I get how hard it is to cut things off, but if we want a baseball back, I think the, we should have put more pressure on having a localized system more like the NBA. How long did we talk about like the bubble model or the hub model, which would have been even just outside of Arizona? What was it like Arizona, Dallas or whatever at the Rangers new stadium in Florida, all three of which seem like terrible places to be right now, given the state of the virus. (laughs) True. Yeah, I think to Brad's point, did we kind of underplay the bubble model? Did we did the league kind of mess up by not insisting on some sort of more isolated regional model here i don't know was that even feasible that's what i wonder is i don't know that it's feasible to play outdoor baseball games in arizona or florida in the middle of the summer during the day which is what a bubble model would kind of necessitate right like you would need to be able to play kind of all throughout the day especially with baseball where the games take longer and they're doing things to we have seen game times have dropped during this like things are moving a little bit quicker in, in some ways but that was always going to be tough and i do think that because baseball was the first one to suggest it because it, and it was so early people really scoffed at it and they sort of bore the brunt of that and then you have like the NBA who has a much it's much easier to handle when you're the NBA to to be able to do a bubble and to make it work and they also were able to eliminate right off the bat eight teams and they're going to be what there's going to be another six teams headed home within a short amount of time and then another yeah. eight teams headed home within a short amount of time just because they were mostly done with their season baseball needs to play to be baseball it needs to play daily and it needs to play for a long time and that was always going to make this whole thing difficult i was talking with a friend of mine and we were talking about should they have and i mentioned this on twitter could they have done divisional bubbles where there are seven mm. domed stadiums six divisions yeah one is in toronto obviously that would not have worked (laughs) but the other ones are the diamondbacks at chase field you have Mm -hmm. marlins park miller park minute Maid park rogers or uh, safeco field and tropicana field could you have divided up and done the five or and just done divisional bubbles instead of having this interdivisional travel and instead done something in the form of that I mean, obviously, when we were supporting more games being played because players deserve more money, it would have had to jeopardize our viewpoints on that for that to be feasible. But is that something we could have they could have visited and kept everyone safer with? That's a really interesting idea. Yeah, I think they did suffer a little bit for not having seen the NBA and hockey like basically start to succeed with it yet. Right. So there there wasn't the, the incentive to be as creative with it. Like 
it's 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 easy to propose doing it in your spring training facilities, which are basically set up as a bubble. You know, that's kind of how they exist to make travel easy and things like that. And I, I just don't think they had the push to go beyond that. It seemed at the time, it seemed like a very desperate thing to do. We, we now have the benefit of hindsight and seeing teams get have breakouts, you know, basically right away under the current scenario. But it would have been nice to see something a little more creative along those lines, because I think that could have worked. And I think I, I still don't think the NFL will play, but I suspect that they will end up doing something very similar to that when it's all said and done and have some kind of a conference and divisional bubbles set up for the teams. Now, I, like I said, football is a different animal, but uh, baseball is in a bad spot of not being like the NBA or hockey in terms of the people they have and the number of games they have to play and, you know, the footprint that it takes to put on a baseball game. And, you know, the NFL gets to come after them and learn the lessons from them. So they had to be the great experimenter and it, <laughs> it's hard to be that it's hard to get it right the first time. Well, and also getting the players to buy in on the bubble concept, if they had seen what the NFL or sorry, what the uh, NBA and NHL had pulled off, that would be very easy to sell the players on or at least a lot easier than it was to say, hey, look, this worked. It's going well for them. They're happy. They're playing like it's pretty it's it's much easier to sell that now than it would have been at the time when it actually would have needed to have been sold. Also, at the time of the negotiations, there were substantial issues which have been thorns in the side of baseball and owners for how long it was an it was them addressing issues that are coming up and issues that are present in the game so when you're talking about getting an early start on arguing about those gigantic barriers between their agreements it's really hard to consider something that at the time seemed as minor as divisional bubbles right yeah, that's true. Uh, the finance has definitely impacted overall negotiations and made it much more difficult to take more creative steps because getting agreement on things outside the box is going to be much trickier. Both sides will take the tact that it, it's a trick of some kind. You know, there's suspicion there. Right. What's you, the you catch? Saw, yeah. yeah, you saw the NBA just has a much better relationship with their union and was able to, to ferret this out very quickly. So that that is also a problem with baseball. And put the blame there wherever you want we of course put it on the owners for being jags about this whole thing but but yeah they were they had a tough spot to be the sort of the pioneers of this type of thing and also an acrimonious relationship to start with i have to bring this up because it was absolutely brilliant it was on the one of the recent podcasts where they did a reunion of the the main people from the fjm crew so if you haven't listened to that and you're oh. an fjm oh nice make sure you go and listen all right yeah, I'd actually I've never heard I've never heard anybody but Mike Shore talk before. Yeah, Yang is on there and a couple others are as well. Okay. So it's it's really good. But they brought up the point that the way that the comeback is being orchestrated in every league is completely telling of what the relationship is between the league and the players. In the NBA, it's let's work together. We're going to solve this. We're going to do this collaboratively and we're going to make this work. And with your input and people are going to have to have buy-in and whatever, it's a collaborative process. In baseball, it's we're going to fight to the death about money. We are going to go at each other with basically knives out and try to kill each other to get an extra buck. And that's because that's been their relationship forever. And then in the NFL, it's just, listen, you'll do as I say. <laughs> <laughs> we already don't care about your long-term safety, so what's a virus, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. And it, it really was. And I was like, whoa, that's brilliant. That is perfect. That that sums up exactly what those relationships are like. That, yeah. that is one of those things that is like hysterical because it's painfully true. <laughs> yep, exactly. Indeed. 
And it's, it, yeah, to Paul's point, it's definitely harder to be creative in these solutions when you're at each other's neck and all you can think about is how to win one over on the other side and there's distrust mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. Kind of going back a little bit to the travel issue, the second part of Jay Google's Patreon question is kind of something that we spent a good amount of time talking about when the schedule came out in the first place. He's asking, would it have been better to do five game home and home series back to back just to you know, cut down on the number or the amount of travel, get those games out. I think all of us kind of at some point mentioned like, this is probably the way to do it. And instead they came out with your typical three game series, nine game road trips. Brad, I know you're, you've been vocal about this. So I'm going to guess you're thinking they would have been better off with the five game stretches there. Yeah, I think they're idiots for not doing it. I think the very <laughs> simple answer is yes. Yeah. There was a very obvious solution. And instead of worrying about how the the safe the safest way to assemble the schedule they worried about the most baseball way to assemble the schedule what is most <laughs> traditional and how can we get that together which ended up creating not only an unnecessarily need for travel that endangered more people but also an unnecessary situation where you have unbalanced schedules which we've already addressed which is just pure idiocy in my personal opinion when there was something so simple and instead you just give up a little bit of the traditional factor of baseball in a non-traditional season. It just seemed like too easy. Brad, can I borrow your tinfoil hat for a moment? Oh, take uh-huh. it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, as long, I'll, wash, I'll yeah. wash my hands fast and then I'll hand it over. All right. So, and I want to be careful about how I say this, but <laughs> there is a certain element of, we know that there were a bunch of teams that didn't necessarily want to play this season. And I'm not, going to accuse anybody of intentionally sabotaging the season but it is interesting that it was the marlins that had the first outbreak and it at least has to make you wonder because we it was pretty widely reported that the marlins were among the teams that were least interested in playing this season and there has to be at least a psychological component or potentially a psychological component here where if you're not fully invested as a group in the enterprise of putting on a season, you're not going to be as active in trying to figure out all the ways that could potentially fail and go wrong and try to prevent problems that way. So I'm not saying that they intentionally did anything, but it it's a matter of if they didn't want to play a season in the first place, how hard are they going to try? How much are they going to go above and beyond to make sure that players stay safe and that the season can continue if they didn't want to begin it in the first place? And so you have to wonder the motivating factors behind some of this stuff and the psychology of it. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> the Cardinals are poor. I've heard it. Oh, yeah. There's yeah, the... poor on the street. Uh, just also, non-contending teams are probably just not going to have as big of an incentive to actually keep this up for a long period of time. Uh, we, right. we've, all, we've all done various levels of quarantine at this point. We all know how tough it gets. Now imagine actually having it be a real quarantine where you're not allowed to do some of the things that you even do right now. If you're if you're a Marlin and you know, you're know you pretty sure you're not going to actually win a title and you, you're living in this bubble that's more constrictive than you were before, yeah, it probably gets pretty tempting to go out and break it. And it, it, the consequences to your team are, oh, we get to you know quit and not play baseball. We're not going to win anyway. Who cares? That's probably definitely a factor. If the next outbreak is by another non-contending team, I won't be surprised at all. Well, and how many Marlins, they stand to make a bunch of money by playing a bunch of games, right? Because of the, yeah. the way their payroll is set up, there's probably less incentive on that team than there are on a lot of teams where it's like, no, we want to get a season in because we want to get paid, 
Remember, that's a big motivating factor here. It's why the players are, mm-hmm. by and large, behind this so much and want to keep showing up is because this is how they can get paid. And with the Marlins, who have a roster largely of minimum salary guys, those are the guys who aren't getting much of anything, if at all, on the on the prorated salary. Like, if anything, they got their money for the year at the start of the year with the first deal, right, with the initial guarantees. So that incentive may be lacking, too. So to the point of maybe the Marlins and, and other teams, we're, we're at a situation where over the weekend something like 40% of entire divisions weren't playing. There were six teams out of commission because of this. It's greatly messing with the schedule. So it kind of leads to another Patreon question from Brian Polakowski. He's asking, how soon before MLB just starts awarding forfeits or canceling individual seasons? Sort of similar to what we're seeing in Major League Soccer. Because to this point, you know, after the first week, there's already loads of postponed games to make up. There's a ton of doubleheaders scheduled in what was already kind of a compacted, impossibly scheduled season. So I guess, Paul, is it just easier to start handing out forfeits for teams who can't play? Is that unfair or what should they do here? (laughs) I don't even know if they have a mechanism for doing that. I know kind of all bets are off here, but I'm not even sure they can. Major League Soccer is its own thing. They, their rules are, in, frankly, insane um, behind the scenes. That but Just so everybody knows, Major League Soccer rigs their league. They have different salary caps for bigger markets than for smaller markets, and they can take a lot of liberties that baseball can't. I don't even know if they could. I don't know. I mean, maybe nobody would complain about it, but uh, I do think what is on the table is not playing games, which, you know, we have a long history of baseball not having teams play 162 games. The I believe the Cardinals, when they won their Garbage World Series, where they barely won the division, only played 161. <laughs> it happens pretty regularly if weather doesn't accommodate it. So I do think that they should start discussing having a rule on how they'll award divisions if teams do finish with different numbers of games because whether they want to or not it might just not be possible (laughs) they should probably make a determination about minimum qualifications or you know winning percentage being the determining factor and they should make that deliberate because winning percentage varies by percentage points based on how many games you've played so figure that all out but uh, I I do think that they might not have a choice in, in terms of having certain teams not play a full 60 games it's going to be difficult and it's going to only it's only going to get harder <laughs> we're early here teams are going to miss what the brewers are already behind the eight ball a little bit on that for, through no fault of their own so right that probably is on the table because it has to be i don't know about forfeiting that seems extreme but um, i think that uh, not playing 60 is very likely the- to your point on figuring out how to make the qualifications different the marlins were in first place all week in the nl east on winning percentage they're two and one so (laughs) they need to figure that out so already they're working on this double header thing and i don't think we actually put that on the rundown so it's i I just realized it wasn't i think we had some questions (laughs) about it but yeah so yeah basically the idea of making things up quickly with two seven inning games so this is a thing first off that has been done in the minor leagues forever to get games in like this goes back as far as I was following minor league baseball it's been around forever and it seems like a perfectly sensible reasonable solution to making this work this is already a screwed up season I would much rather have people playing double headers in that seven game format if that's what it's going to take to facilitate that than I would having unplayed games and or extending the season or whatever so I have zero problem with that there's yeah, long-standing precedent in the minor leagues for it, and yeah, it, it's not a full major league game. But this is not, this is not a full major league it's season. It's not a real season. Who cares? Right. Right. Yeah, I <laughs> wouldn't. It, it's a, add it to the list of things that I'm fine with in this year, and wouldn't want to see stick around 
long term. I would want other solutions, but it's it's fine. I would I totally agree with Paul in the idea that forfeiting seems extreme, but not playing games. There's going to be games that aren't going to be able to be played. And so some sort of a, a an idea where you're looking at winning percentage, that's probably going to need to be instituted if they're going to try to get to the finish line here. I think the one thing to consider with forfeiting games is that teams who test positive might benefit from it more in the playoff chase than the team than other teams. So there's a consideration that playing less games could actually improve your winning percentage over time. So I think there does need to be a negative penalty on the people who's at, who who are at fault. Like the car or the Marlins, I believe actually have a pretty good record right now because they've mm-hmm. played next to no games. Yeah. They're um, two and one. Yeah. So yeah. they're, 660 winning percentage right now yeah so i think rather than protecting their winning percentage there does have to be a penalty on them so maybe they forfeit a game on their side but it doesn't count as a as an automatic victory on the side of the teams who didn't face them because of their crappy quarantining but I mean, I agree with everything Paul and Ryan said aside from that, because especially when we're looking at an expanded playoff scenario where it's going to be more forgiving anyway, if you do have a fluke loss here or there, it it doesn't really matter aside from home field advantage, which we've already discussed, isn't nearly the factor that it is in other seasons, aside from when you're a team like the Brewers who are built for a lefty park and you might not get those three games in your lefty park, that might be damaging but all big picture total, it doesn't hurt as much as it would in another season. Sure. I just think forfeiting games for positive tests is a very tricky situation that could get ugly in a hurry. Yes, you maybe want some sort of penalty for teams who are flagrantly not following the rules. But at the same time, this is a virus that you can get just walking down the street through no fault of your own, right? So where's that line? I say it quickly with I say it quickly with knowing that it is much more difficult than what I say. Like you're one hundred percent right, James. Like you can't just punish people for you know, getting something that is seemingly more contagious than the cold. But you do have to I think especially when it's proven, like I believe initial reports are there's proven misconduct by the Marlins in terms of how they handled the safety guidelines. I think there you have to figure out a way to ensure they don't benefit when there is factual proof in those investigations that they don't do it. However, what that situation looks like, what it looks like and not punishing guys for if the Cardinals got it because they did go grocery shopping. It's not the casinos rumor that's been out there. How do you punish them for like the most innocent thing? Right. It's unfair. But I think there has to be some way to weight that to ensure that, you know, missing seven games doesn't end up getting the Marlins the last playoff spot when they were the ones who broke protocol. We don't know necessarily how they broke protocol, but the MLB investigation points towards that being the case. So how do you ensure that they don't benefit from playing a week less than everyone else sure and this is also a culture where maybe if there is some sort of punishment that kind of reinforces more vigilance in the dugouts or whatever in in the protocols themselves like right now there's not really too much of a penalty of it other than you know getting the virus but money talks and if if players recognize that it's going to cost the team wins and 
a chance at more money and more playoffs, maybe that speaks to it more. It's just a very tricky situation that there's no easy answer to, but it, it's something that maybe needs to be thought about right now. Sort of shifting gears, the idea of possibly doing everything right and still getting the virus is kind of leading Lorenzo Kane to opt out of the rest of the season. So he's one of, if not the first player to opt out after previously playing. Uh, he got off to a really good start over the first five or six games. Uh, looked like a new guy out there kind of compared to last year. Like the layoff kind of really helped him uh, get healthy again, but ultimately decided that the uncertainty of the league right now and, and the kind of climate of the culture overall kind of led him to talk to his family and decided that staying home is probably the best thing for him. So the team could confirm that you know, because he wasn't considered high risk, he's giving up the rest of his money for the rest of this year, too, which is not an insignificant amount for Lorenzo Cain. And he'll have two years left on his deal when play resumes next year, if play resumes next year. So I guess, first of all, Ryan, first impressions on this decision. Did it come as a surprise to you? I guess it came as a surprise that it wasn't Ryan Braun first. That was my first thought because we've, I mean, he's been openly talking about the idea of taking it day to day and all that. So the, the Kane thing seemed to come out of, out of nowhere. It was really telling. Did you guys see the John Lester comments about it? Uh, John Lester went out of his way to say that Lorenzo Kane is like a highly respected member of the baseball fraternity. Uh, the, uh, players look up to him and think that he is, and obviously you, you understand completely why, just having had him on the team the last couple of years, the man carries respect in the game and among the players mm -hmm. and it's just obvious and so it was very interesting to see John Lester being so complimentary of him and talking about that and I think it does have an effect I think it maybe not the the final thing that's going to cause a bunch of other people to decide to opt out but it it has to it has to be a big factor for a lot of guys mm -hmm. thought process right that that Lorenzo Kane is doing this and I think that you really just have to say for him, like the, he did what he had to do and there's absolutely zero animosity or hard feelings on that as there really is with any player that decides to opt out. And it isn't a good omen for the season being able to continue and, and move on. But yeah, ultimately we kind of have to remember that that isn't the most important thing. It's people staying safe and people staying healthy. Does somebody of specifically of Lorenzo Kane's stature, somebody who carries so much respect in the game, does that kind of open the door for maybe other players to make a similar decision now? Kind of him being the first showing it's okay, kind of taking that leadership role in a different way almost. Does that kind of open the door to, you know, you saw the positive reactions to his decision. Kind of, I think maybe a lot of guys who might've been on the fence thinking maybe they were backing out on teammates or whatever. Does Lorenzo Kane, somebody who's like the ultimate teammate, ultimate leader backing, not backing out, but opting out. Does that kind of make it more okay now, Paul, for other people yeah. to kind of do the same? It absolutely does. It always takes uh, some kind of pioneer to, to violate a norm. There's always pressure to, you know, stick with your team and, you know, put yourself or put um, your team before yourself until somebody does something like this. I'll, I won't be surprised at all if there's a little bit of a wave after this. The the Brewers, they're you know going to play the Cardinals. It, it, you take a look in the mirror at you know what is actually important. Um, you could have very well been on the field with a bunch of infected guys had it been caught a little bit later and be dealing with all the the medical ramifications of it and having your life turned upside down in a whole new way. 
I, I do kind of wonder if some of the people that were potentially impacted by the Marlins, you know, some, some Phillies people um, maybe having some similar thoughts right now. And I do wonder if this might break the floodgates a little bit. Like I, I, I also half wonder if like, like the previously mentioned Anthony Rizzo m- might be considering it a little more strongly since I think he probably is in a high risk group and could probably do so without penalty. He is probably a pioneer here. And I suspect that as breakouts continue to happen, you'll start to see more and more people take this route. Yeah, there definitely is a lot of weight behind it for players who are already on the edge. I think it kind of opens the door as permission for guys who were afraid before. Mm-hmm. Because I I think especially when you see these team leader types playing through the pain in this situation, I put heavy quotations around that because it's a, fic- a ridiculous way to perceive risking your health. But I Yeah, think it's a Manfredian way of putting it. Yep. <laughs> I hope it opens the door for people who are legitimately afraid for the health of them and their family. And I don't want them to feel the force to play. However, there still is a difficult situation of, is it easier for Lorenzo Kane than a lot of other people because he's already built up wealth throughout his career. When you're looking at, you know, people who I'll just say a couple of players who are close that we know are going on when you're looking at a Keston Hira who has had minimal time to build up wealth. I mean, he probably is actually in a good situation, drafted first overall. It only takes him a couple of years to come up, so hopefully he still has a chunk of that bonus. But then you have Trent Grishams, who took a long time to come up through the system, who aren't benefiting from that bonus, who probably need this money more, especially after as long of a layover as they did. And that, what I believe they owe some of their salary back that they were, were making during the COVID uh, stoppage. So it's... I, I still wonder if those people feel that they can actually step away from it when they don't have that that security to fall back on like Kane, a, a veteran player, does have. Well, and there's also the weird thing that cuts the other direction. Think about the Nick Markakis situation this week. I know Paul That's and I an were, entire were discussing Yeah, this that was crazy. Uh, he opted out and then decided to come back because evidently he felt bad. He, he felt like he was abandoning his teammates yep. and was basically open. It's like the reverse Kane situation where it totally he, was, is. He, By the he way, was welcome back. So August I, 1st was the deadline to do that. You can no longer do that. So right. no one can who has opted out can come back in. But still, uh, you got to imagine there's players who feel the way Markakis felt who are just playing through their fears anyway because they owe it to their teammates. Yep. Right. So that's kind of the hope that the Kane decision has, right? Like where a veteran team leader says, no, it's okay. You do you. Go home. We talked about the Rob Manfred quote at the top here too, and that – really rubbed a lot of people, I think, including me the wrong way, because those comments came after Lorenzo Cain, Gold Glover, all-star, very prominent player, opted out. So Manfred may not have meant it as calling Lorenzo Cain a quitter, but it kind of came off that way, right? It was just terrible messaging all around in, in that situation. But what else is new for Rob Manfred? Same old, same old. I don't think he did mean it like Lorenzo Cain's a quitter, but I think no. you got to realize that your words are going to mean that whether you intend them to or not. Read the and, room, Rob. Yeah, especially exactly. when you're the leader of that side of the organization. Come on. Right. Be more responsible for the words that come out of your mouth. Exactly. Rob Manfred not able to read the room? Well, I never. All right. So kind of the, the baseball side of this situation obviously leaves a big hole in center field for the Brewers if slash when they continue playing. So we've got a couple of questions kind of on that front. First, we got a Twitter question from Mitch. He's asking, given there's still a season, 
what would you do in center field? I guess, Brad, what's what's your fallback option A? Gamble's been so hot right now. I think it's hard not to go with him. Obviously, your defense drops a little bit, but I think he's a quality defensive center fielder who won't leave you too much. And with the bat going as heavy as it is, I, I think it's hard to – it's – like, okay, now we don't have to fight to get him in the lineup. Yes, we lost a guy who was very, who is a much better player than Ben Gamble. But the, now it's Ben Gamble's chance to, you know, stay hot and stay active. We talked about how you want to ride hot bats this season because of the short, quick stretch it is. And this is the opportunity to do that. Uh, and unfortunately, I'm going to jump into the next question from that we got from uh, JD on Twitter. But also, I think platooning him with Keon Broxton, who is another guy who, when he gets hot, is a dominant force uh, and also a very quality defender that you can play at all three outfield positions. I think between those two, you can somehow get close to what Kane was going to give you this season. and Maybe not quite an offensive impact, but at least you're not taking the hit that I think you otherwise would if you were taking someone who is a much larger offensive presence in the lineup like a hero like a yelich where yes kane is an important offensive presence but i think if you get either of those guys hot you can survive it yeah instead of a strict platoon with Keon, i think what you do is you you try and cheat to get some offense in center field however you can whether that's hot gamble or or maybe even dumping yelich in there for a little bit and then you have Keon to be the defensive sub, like you have in a lot of positions to go out there when you're playing a, a team that's putting the ball in play more as a late defensive substitution to, to be that elite defender, not quite Kane level, but, you know, uh, Keon's a very, very good center fielder. And and just, you know, mix and match and, and fix it the way that the Brewers fix every problem that they have at any position, which is you know, put the guy who's best out there for the situation. And at least you have some, you have some of the parts of Kane that you can throw out there individually, even if you lose the whole thing. Yeah, they have ample coverage for this. There's a lot of different ways that they can make this work. I think you start with Gamble most days, and maybe you do go with Ken Broxton. I was just looking at the Brewers 40-man roster. Lorenzo Kane is already off of it, mm-hmm. and it looks like they have a full 40-man, and Broxton is not on it. So that would be a potential barrier. So if, if Kane, Kane is <laughs> off of it, who did they add on? Yeah. I cannot tell. <laughs> I don't I don't think as right. of this recording they they haven't announced a corresponding move yet. I'm uh, sure they'll probably yeah, wait but until it, Chicago to do that. But but yeah. Uh, I, I, I I figured it would be Keon because yeah. I think that's the reason you have him, right? Is that the defensive versatility that he provides you as what's truly a fifth outfielder. Like sure. the other part of this is you can make Avasale and uh Yelich play center field and then mm-hmm. Tell Braun, get your butt out there and play some corner outfield. You can't DH all season. Sorry, something happened. Uh, and then that's when he'll opt out. Just kidding. I love Ryan Braun, but it was an easy <laughs> opportunity to talk some trash. Otherwise, I guess Tyrone Taylor is an adequate defender and and can go in there. Corey Ray, I, I just don't know if it, if you can trust that offense right now. No. For what it's worth, it does sound like from what David Stearns and others are saying is that Gamble's the the first option right now. Uh, I think I like him better in center than in the corners because, as we saw for the first six games, Gamble's arm in the corners is just really <laughs> annoyingly bad. So I think I like him better in center where you don't have to rely on him to make those uh, tag-up throws quite as often. Uh, and his range is fine in center, as he's shown. So if he can stay hot, great. Uh yeah, uh, Brad mentioned we got the Twitter question from JD, kind of mentioning Tyrone Taylor, Keon Broxton, uh, 
so I guess if there's good news, it's that the Brewers were deep on outfielders to begin with. So they've got some options to slide in. And in a shortened schedule, all you really do need is somebody to get hot for a couple of weeks and you kind of muddle your way through it. So I guess that's kind of what we'll see going forward. One other thing I wanted to bring up, I didn't put this in the rundown until now, but obviously uh, part of the reason the offense has been struggling so much is Christian Yelich has been just flat out bad for the first week of the year. I did a piece on Brew Crew Brawl kind of looking at this. A lot was made just like Christian Yelich has never struggled this much as a Milwaukee Brewer, which I guess fine if you want to take a hit away here or there. I'm, I'm going to kind of go the Paul route. and It's like, okay, sure. But like the differences <laughs> between this and a couple other stretches is literally just a couple more hits falling in. So he has had these kind of stretches before, but I guess, have you guys seen anything that kind of concerns you at least on the way that he's playing that this might be a bigger issue or is it just kind of a bad first week and we're noticing because it's a first week thing? I mean, it's a little concerning because it, he was not tearing it up before the season started. So sure. you can, you can add a little sample size there, but I do think he has stung the ball a few times too and just lost a few, um, you know, baba pits that otherwise would have fallen in. He's hit the ball hard a few times. So it's not like he's just completely lost out there. You do worry about bad luck always, you know, impacting a guy's mental space and, and causing slumps. That's kind of what slumps are a lot of the time. But I wouldn't be concerned yet. It, it's, it's a very small sample size and a very weird season. And, um, you know, he's still crushing the ball when he gets all of it too. So uh, I, I would. I give it almost no concern this to this point. Give me another six games and I'll start to have some. But um, I, I think it's mostly just bad luck um, with, you know, some minor struggles underneath it. I was tempted to read something into facial expressions that I've seen watching him. And then I reminded myself oh, no. that that's dumb and don't do that. So I'm I'm going to pass this over to Brad and <laughs> say no. <laughs> I think Miller Park is something that gets Christian Yelich hot each year, and he hasn't had Miller Park yet. He obviously loves hitting in that park. If you look at his statistics over the last two seasons, things mm-hmm. have gone very well for him at uh, the keg. So until he gets there and struggles there for a long period of time, that's not a scrimmage. I'm not as concerned as I possibly could be by what he's doing right now at the plate. He's still a MVP winner and was second place MVP and should have been first in last season. So I do think there's no reason for concern right now. We all, we see great players go through slumps. It it's never fun to watch because you want them to do what they've done in the past. But I think he always gets his fused a little, little by how much Miller park favors left-handed hitters and left-handed power. Yeah. I mean, he's admitted at, least that his timing is off and you can kind of see that with his leg kick like he he's his timing on the leg kick is just off and that's throwing him off quite a bit too but I think Brad's right in that getting back to Miller Park maybe getting a cheap home run or two <laughs> kind of gets the confidence back up and you know it's, it's still hard for the hitters too like yeah they had summer camp but a lot of them were you know Lorenzo Kane said it was really hard to go from the couch to facing live 95 mile an hour fastballs right and uh, so I, I think we'll see him kind of rounded out a little bit here, uh, going forward, but I mean, he's far from the only guy struggling too. I mean, we saw it with the Cubs series too. Chris Bryant was like what one for his first 20 or something like that too. Yeah. But he saw a thousand pitches. That's also true. <laughs> he sure so did. I guess, 
I guess maybe if there's a concerning thing too is that Yelich is swinging a lot too. He's got he's only got one or two walks through this thing too, which is also very unchristian like. Uh, but I mean, it, it's a week. Let's give it a little bit more time, as Paul said. I, I think too, it's a little hard to judge slumps at the beginning because we know they have more limited access to training than they have in the past, right? Like these are guys sure. who are not at the condition that they are normally happy with, who didn't have the two weeks to warm up to hitting and then a month of hitting off of other guys and seeing different looks. And then, it, it, I mean, normally the first half of that month is just seeing fastballs. So you get to get your timing adjusted against guys working on location with their fastballs. Right. So I think there's a portion to be said like that, that we all know it's stated time and time and time and time and time again about how hitter or all baseball players are creatures of habit. And it is something to be said about when you disrupt that flow and the normal way they get ready it's difficult. Right. And you've seen Ryan Braun and other people saying like this last road trip starting the year for, with six games on the road was just kind of disrupting for all of them. Right. Because they got used right. to Miller park and being at home for a month and then they go on the road. So again, let's see what happens when they start playing home games. Indeed. If, if they ever do, we actually have a lot more Patreon questions to get through. So first up we've got Darren Jones. He's asking, assuming the MLB season continues on Monday for the Brewers. They'll have a four-game series against the White Sox. The Brewers haven't played a game since last Wednesday, while the White Sox had a weekend series in Kansas City. He's asking, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages the Brewers might have due to the odd circumstances and the long layoff? I think that they get time to heal up any bruises, which happen over the course of time getting beaten up. But I think the hard thing is, what do you do to your rotation? I mean, right. these guys are four days off now, and we know how much, you know, some pitchers can be affected by seven days off. And now you've had Brett Anderson be scheduled to start for how many days, as right. we joked about earlier. I think what you do to your rotation is pretty hard. I'm kind of surprised the Brewers haven't actually gone to, actually, let's have Brett Anderson throw a simulated game on Saturday, have the next guy throw a simulated game on Sunday, and then we'll move. Th and then whoever was supposed to start on Monday will, or, you know, keep moving it through that way. So I'm a little surprised it didn't go that way because I thought it's given how hard it is to continue sitting and be ready when you're used to like, okay, four days of prep, one day of expelling that energy, and then four days of prep. I, I thought they'd be a little bit more diligent in doing it. I also don't think Craig Council gives a crap about old school mentality when it comes to keeping pitchers ready, which is something I respect. <laughs> but I think that's the biggest disadvantage compared to, you know, it really is important to just get healthy. And that's an opportunity that the Brewers have now that other teams haven't had where, you know, we know those nagging injuries over time beat you up. I mean, pitchers are used to having starts bumped and things around a little bit. I'm not super concerned about that i'm actually a little but more concerned days? well no i mean guys do get like a rain out or there's the all-star break sure i mean there's there's things that happen throughout the course of the season postseason situations anybody who's been through that knows that you're sometimes going to get bumped i'm a little more worried about the hitters timing just because i think that that's a harder thing to simulate than having a pitcher like throwing uh, a side session and keeping up that way. And I'm sure they've been doing some of that. It, it's not quite the same, but hitters facing live pitching is something that you get into a rhythm of it. And hitters, when they, when they don't have that 
sometimes do get a little cold. You see teams after like a long playoff layoff, you know, when a team has to sit for like a week before their next playoff series, you'll see them oftentimes come in cold and hitting wise. And they'll sometimes even do things like find a college uh, team to like scrimmage against to keep themselves going so that they can face live pitching in some sort of facsimile of competition, even if it's well below their level. So I'm a little bit concerned about that, but ultimately I just want to have the baseball back and I want it to be safe and I want it, you know, I, I want all of that, but I, I ultimately just like, I, I want to see a game at Miller park on Monday night, you know, on TV. I'm, I'm not actually yeah. getting to go. It'd be nice if I could go, but I can't. Yeah. So that's the biggest advantage for the White Sox is they've had a relatively normal baseball life, you know, for, for what this is actually traveling, seeing other teams, playing their game, doing their sports, keeping their mind off of other things where the Brewers have been sitting at home, having to stew about this. Let's keep in mind, too, in terms of keeping pitchers on track, that they didn't necessarily know until yesterday morning that they weren't going to play a double header um, right. on Sunday. So it's not like you can you can plan as if they knew it was going to happen. Nothing was going to happen until Monday because they didn't know that. And yeah, rust is going to be a big factor. They have not had anything close to normal routine and baseball players love routine. So I, I suspect that they will struggle coming out of the gates a little bit. And it's definitely a disadvantage. Yeah. I mean, you saw Brett Anderson joke on Twitter, but there's a fair amount of frustration behind that too, because like to Paul's point, a lot of these decisions weren't ma- being made until hours before game time. Uh, you saw Anderson and Josh Lindblom was the other ones like basically tongue in cheek asking Ken Rosenthal, like, Hey, do you know if I have to go to to workouts today? Uh, Because they were getting their information from the national media before presumably hearing from Brewers staff, which is another completely different issue that I'm sure is frustrating on a different level for the players. But I think what's happening is I think MLB is making a decision that's getting out to the reporters as MLB is informing the team of the decisions before they actually have time to like beat it down the line. So I don't think this is like one of those situations that we normally have during the season where in July you're finding out you're traded from Ken Rosenthal before anyone's told you're trading and you're like, come on team, you couldn't have called them first. No, it's not. It's not that at all. You're right, Brad. These are all very fluid situations. It's understandable, but also understandable that the players are kind of frustrated because, as we said, they're creatures of habit and just any disruption in that is going to be at least mildly annoying. So it will be interesting to kind of see how this unevenness affects them. But but at the same time, they're going to be far from the only team dealing with that this year. It's part of the flexibility that, you know, Manfred and others have been talking about. So. I guess we'll see what's going on, but absolutely. I think the White Sox kind of had more of an advantage as they start to settle into this new normal, if you want to call it that. Another Patreon question from PJ Wessels. He's asking, who surprised you in a good way six games into the season? Given from the the Cubs and Pirates series, I guess, Ryan, who stood out to you that you were impressed by? Justin Smoke. He's been stinging the ball and taking good at bats, and I'm going to stay on brand here and stick with Justin Smoke. Boo. And in sticking it to Paul, yeah. Or Orlando Arcia. <laughs> Very on brand, everybody. Nice work. <laughs> Hard to argue, though. He's been good. Stay no, I mean, Arcia has been pretty good. Yeah, he's, uh, he's been stinging it, too. And If there was anyone I didn't have confidence in, I wanted to have confidence in him. It was him. <laughs> right, but I mean, we, we've talked for weeks, like, watch he's gonna lose everything he had in spring training. And, and the first <laughs> couple of days were a little ugly, but, you know, it, it appears that 
you know, he's still hitting the ball hard when he makes contact and yeah. is not flailing yeah. at sliders outside of the zone. His uh, swing looks better. His timing looks better. And it's a swing we've seen peaks of before, but it's so hard to make muscle adjustments in the middle of a season when you don't have time to like repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it until you yeah. have it ingrained in. So you always watched him morph back to what he was. And now you can see it paying dividends. Yeah, I guess, Paul, who's your surprising pick for the first week? So uh, with the caveat that I think Ben Gamble's the obvious one, I'll, I'll go David Phelps, who has looked pretty rejuvenated, has a 1.17 FIP, um, 5 to 1 strikeout to, to walk ratio, and looks like he knows what he's doing and is kind of back to normal. So uh, it's it's good to see that, that he was a bounce back uh, acquisition and you know, in a very, very small sample size, seems to be bouncing back pretty well. So we should have let that... people put bets on who we were going to say beforehand because it would have been so easy. <laughs> <laughs> I guess but Justin Smoke does have a 588 OPS right now. So um, just FYI. Just say. <laughs> really? Oh, that, but those that two foul. hits are home runs. It's fun. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> no, I, I think I said this on Twitter the other day, but I was actually kind of really encouraged by Josh Lindblom's start. And I don't know if it's a surprise, just more that I wasn't sure what to expect. but. You know, Brad noted on Brew Crew Ball that he looked good. The crazy thing is he doesn't throw hard at all. I, for some reason, I thought he had a couple more ticks on his fastball than he actually does. But nothing he throws is straight. And that's kind of encouraging to me. So it all wiggles. It all wiggles, as yeah, as they say. So, you know, he, he kind of ran into some trouble in his last inning as his back spasms flared up. But before that, he he looked really solid. And granted, yes, the Pirates are trash. But uh, <laughs> it it was kind of encouraging to see that. And if he could be a solid four starter going the rest of the way, I think that's great. PJ had a second half to his question here, more in the doom and gloom category than the positivity. He's asking, is it more likely that the season lasts until mid-August or the Bucks win the NBA Finals? Ryan? I'm going to say that the Bucks win the NBA Finals because I think that there's an excellent chance of that. They look pretty solid. They look solid the other night. Granted, I haven't watched a lot of Bucks games, but... You know, they, they look solid for the first game in the bubble. I also just think that the MLB is a, another outbreak away from at least having to pause the season. So, yeah. I, and I think that's not that far away. It took a week to have two. How much longer can it take to have a third? Yeah, my only, sure. hes- only hesitation on the Bucks is that the referees apparently hate them as much as they do the 2001 Milwaukee Bucks. So, um, but yeah, <laughs> I think that baseball is pretty close to being shut down and the Bucks have a pretty good chance of winning it. So. I'll go Bucks too. There we go. Clean sweep. Another Patreon question. This one from Brian Polakowski. He says, with the double headers being several, seven innings, besides Brandon Woodruff, which starting pitcher has the best chance for a seven inning double header complete game? So there's, I don't know. I don't know if anybody here <laughs> would go I, seven innings, but I guess Brad. I would pick Adrian Hauser. He has the most like strikeout stuff. If you're going to go with anyone who can really keep a lineup off balance for that long. And I think be trusted by the manager to do so it would be Hauser. And I, but I wouldn't bet strongly on anyone beside Woodruff. Yeah. I think Hauser is the guy for me too. And I think that he looked really good in that start in Pittsburgh, even though, and I was surprised and I did criticize on Twitter. And I want to say, cause I did hear later that, they were actually working on this and making sure that it was safe. But Adrian Hauser waited about two hours after throwing that first inning and then was throwing again in the second. And I really blanched at that and was wondering what the hell they were thinking. And apparently he was (laughs) working on staying warm the whole time. They had a plan and he was up in the concourse doing stuff to stay fresh and ready. And so 
it wasn't an issue and he looked really really good and granted again it was the pirates lineup but he kind of mowed through them in pretty efficiently too because i don't think he i think threw five innings and it was like 60 pitches so he was pretty efficient i would give him a chance to to do a a complete game in a seven inning doubleheader game yeah i'd probably go with hauser but i would also think about putting putting some money on peralta just because he is so boom and bust if he is having one of his hot games we've seen him actually go deep into games more frequently than than most other brewer starters just because of that so you know he's also the, the, one of the more likely to bust out in the first inning and be out of the game but <laughs> he, he is somewhat likely to plow through seven innings so i would also say maybe maybe freddie all good picks. I think it'd be something stupid like Brett Anderson, but I don't know. Well, if, <laughs> Brett, you know, Anderson, you can... if Brett Anderson is ever allowed past the fifth, no matter what happens <laughs> after that, I'm going to burn it all down. I will not allow that 85 mile see... per hour throwing blister having jerk to try to go jerk. more than five wow. inches. I wow. know he's actually really cool and seems like a nice guy. He, he's a nice but person. This is the stance I decided to take and I really had to lean into it. Yeah, that was a that was a hot take moment. <laughs> though i would say brett anderson has weird games where like you look and it's like the sixth inning and he's at like 45 pitches or something like could you see something that's kind of my thinking like something really weird like 62 pitches over seven innings like he's just cruising along with two going right yeah exactly if it ever happens it's always something stupid like that right yeah it's something that no one's actually going to predict and that's what's fun about baseball Speaking of something stupid, the Brewers are definitely throwing a seven inning no hitter this year, right? And it's not oh, going to yeah. count. Oh, yeah. Of course. <laughs> yes. Friend of the show, J.R. Radcliffe, did look into the rules, and it doesn't count if it's a seven inning no hitter, apparently. So oh. the, Brewers, the Brewers are definitely throwing one this I year. I thought it does count if it's a seven inning no hitter. It doesn't count if it's a nine inning perfect game, is how I understand the rules. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I think. Or, no, not a nine inning perfect game. It doesn't st- count unless it's a nine inning perfect game. Oh, so you can't okay. have like an eight inning perfecto. Or something I think like a seven that. inning no hitter has to count because here's a hypothetical. What if you're playing one of your seven inning games and the last one, you're playing the second one of the day, seven inning, second half of a doubleheader. You get to the fifth, you have a no hitter and a torrential downpour happens and the game is called and you are awarded the victory. That's a no hitter, right? Historically, five inning no hitters are no hitters, aren't they? I don't think so. I don't think they really. I don't. Yeah, I don't think so. The thing is, I don't think no hitter is actually a stat with rules. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Probably not, no. But, you know, if if it's a thing where it's not an official no hitter, the Brewers are definitely doing it. And the Brewers are definitely doing it with like five different pitchers over seven no hit innings, right? Yeah, and it'll be their third no hitter. It'll be Yeah, I think I think JR said it's like the Brett Anderson, Eric Yardley, like pick your four most random pitchers. It's definitely happening this year. The next Brewers no-hitter, if it ever does happen, is going to be a combined no-hitter anyway. So people are already going to say it doesn't count. So Exactly. Exactly. So one last Patreon question here from Darren Jones. He says, one of the few bright spots in the series finale against the Cubs, that ugly-ass Sunday game we were talking about, was Eric Lauer's performance. I guess, Brad, what were your takeaways from Eric Lauer's outing on Sunday? It made me kind of hope, as much as I like Freddie, that they switch them and put Lauer back in the rotation like he was slotted. I think he's a very good guy who goes five or six innings and then you you replace him out. Um, I would rather see him that way. I thought he looked crisp, pitches looked good, and I think he's much more valuable in that spot, considering I believe he can do that more consistently than Freddie Peralta can do his magic. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing that I take away from it is six strikeouts in 10 batters faced is really good. And that was a that was a Cubs lineup that wasn't necessarily striking out a bunch. Uh, Woodruff had issues striking them out and had no issues striking out the Pirates. So (laughs) though Corbin Burns did strike out, what was it, six also on in his start? He did. We can't judge anything off. Yeah, we can't judge anything off of what Corbin Burns does. Nope. That guy's just an enigma. We have no idea on Corbin. <laughs> but I, I do think enigma, but yeah. if anybody can push Freddie to the bullpen, it's a win all across the board. And if it's Lauer, that's that's so much the better. I, th- I still think Peralta plays better in the bullpen, and it's nice to have another arm in there. And Lauer looked good enough that I think that might be what happens. So, yeah, that's, that's a positive. And by the way, quick update. Shortened no-hitters did count as no-hitters until September of 1991, when that was what it was. When yeah. a commission chaired by Faye Vincent changed the rule and removed 15 no-hitters from the record book. So, what? He retroactively yep. took away no-hitters? He did. That is correct. Faye Vincent is the worst. Okay. I, I am going to retroactively remove Faye Vincent from the history books. <laughs> <There we go. laughs> this is what I'm going to do. Well, that is a thing that Bud Selig did. So, like, <laughs> It's a very Milwaukee of you to do that. Oh man! So See, that, that was did the caveat. Do good things. <laughs> oh man! Yeah. So that's something Rob Manford would probably do too. Is just you like this thing? Let's take it away. Mm-hmm. Cycles aren't a thing anymore. Rob Manford says. <laughs> I don't, know. don't give him baseball. Any ideas. Baseball isn't moving fast enough. Doubles are now called two singles. Yes, <laughs> like, exactly. All right. Uh, one more question to wrap it up here. We got this one on Twitter from Anthony Pollard. He's asking, what is the best path for the brewers to fully restock the farm system? So I'll just say, Brad. Uh, you want the boring, truthful answer? Development. They have a lot of young, good talent who just is not established enough and has so many red flags, you don't actually know what's going to happen. Uh, it seems like they have uh, potentially two right now. Garrett Mitchell is pretty strongly making the top 100s that have been updated. And Bryce Terang has been a fringe top 100 for a while. And Bryce Terang is still on the very edge of his development and it will continue developing. Then you have players who tend to make top 150s like Ethan Small, like Tristan Lutz. Lutz, if he continues developing, is a top 100 talent. Small just has to pitch a full season and he probably makes the back end of some top 100s if things go as well as we hope they do. It is all about development. They do not have stars right now that they can trade for top one. I mean, they do, but they're not, they don't have stars that they're going to trade for top 100 talent and the tradable assets aren't going to get you top 100 players most likely, especially in the season we have right now. So you're looking at like Sogard smokes and that aren't going to get you that. And unless you trade away like a Keston hero, a Brandon Woodruff or a Christian Yelich, which we know isn't happening, then you're not going to get that through that method. So the easiest way is, just development it's boring but it's true and i have no concerns about the brewers doing it i think they just traded a bunch of top tier uh, top level talent that's why the system emptied out their bottom is still heavy they have exciting prospects that are in the lower half especially even they've been doing so well with the international prospects as of late that that that's where they're going to come from and that was where i was going to go with this is the international side hedbert perez was just added to the... I was just going to ask, yep. how far is my man Hedbert from Hedbert. making the top 100? Hedbert of the great name. Hedbert, I mean, <laughs> he of the great I name. I do think people can increase their top 100 stock by performing well at these 
uh, scrimmage games and the uh, systems. So I think if Hedbert performs well, he could just, without us really knowing why, uh, because I mean, some of us will know why, but without fans really understanding why, he could maybe work his way in there if he performs well against people who are legitimately fringe MLB players. Yep. Yep. And you also have other, as Brad was saying, there's other guys in the system who have come through internationally lately who are potentially very interesting. Eduardo Garcia is high on that list. And you have you have a number of other guys, Carlos Rodriguez. There's a number of other guys that could potentially turn into legitimate top flight major leaguers. So they were they're even on board to sign some exciting ones this round, but we won't know that until January. I mean, yep. we won't see it happen until January. We know it happened because they signed them when they were 13, but <laughs> yep. <laughs> Under the table. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And by the way, to, to the conventional answer to your question, which is, you know, you need to draft higher to replenish your farm system. That's bad. You don't want to do that. So, you know, what the guy said is correct. You need to develop what you've got. You need to go out in the international market, which isn't constrained by your wins and losses and develop there. When, when you're in a situation where people are asking about, re, you know, restocking the farm system, it's usually good because it usually means your actual major league baseball team is good. And that's what the brewer, where the brewers are right now. So they need to be creative about it. They, they're not ranking high, highly in terms of top 100 talent at the moment. There's ways around that. But, you know, this isn't the NFL where you can trade for draft picks. Um, it, it, the only way to actually get those high level draft picks is to suck. And that's bad. So they're in a good spot in terms of where they are with their, their system right now. And they're, they are being good, aggressive and creative about doing what they are able to do to keep it as, as good as it can be. Yep. I do think if Manfred survives past this season, which is a print, is a question, but I don't think is as questionable as some fans want it to be. I, I do think that trading picks might be one of the good things he adds to the MLB draft outside of the compensation picks. I think that that's something they they're purposefully experimenting with that form, which then would make things more exciting for a team that values developing as much as Milwaukee does. But yeah, they, they're obviously not in the shape they were before acquiring Christian Yelich, but I think they're closer to having three or four top 100 players on that list than a lot of fans believe. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, lots of good questions this week. If you have something you want us to talk about, we put out a call for questions every week on our Twitter account. That's at MKE tailgate. Just reply to that tweet with your tw- with your questions, or you can follow all of us individually. Ryan is at RD Top, Paul is at Badger Noonan, Brad is at Brew Crew Blue, and I'm at James L. That's James with a Y. You can also send questions by becoming a patron. You get question priority that way. Just go to patreon.com slash MKE Tailgate. And you also get a shout out when you do sign up. While you're at it, if you haven't already, please do subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, anywhere else you listen to the podcasts or where you listen to us. And please do leave us a review while you're there. In the meantime, thanks all for listening this week. Hopefully we have more games to talk about next week. We'll see uh, how this entire situation unfolds. In the meantime, stay well, and we will see you next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate.
you can really share the lump of Kane's load and be that came out weird. Uh, but you can, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, uh, you can share 